If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Proverbs chapter 1. If you don't have them with you, let me just remind you, you've come to church. I don't know why you wouldn't have your Bible. Um, it's so good to see you all here this morning. I'm spending a few weeks here in Proverbs. I, I think there is a <clears throat> deepening need within the Church of Christ to remind itself of the wisdom of God from the book of Proverbs. And so, <clears throat> because I believe that, I will also do that with you all. Uh, so let me introduce the book to you. I realize that many of you um, probably feel like you know Proverbs well. I, I want to reintroduce it to you because I think there's probably some, some themes and some ideas that are, are missing uh, from many of our, our ideas about the, what the book of Proverbs really entails. So I want you to start with me. By, by looking in verse 1, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. <clears throat> so here we have Solomon introducing these Proverbs. And we'll now run through the next 31 chapters. He's introducing them to his son. So this is a grandson of David that should be the, the recipient, right? The, the reader of this. And so you have this, this father introducing to his son Proverbs to train him. And the thought would be this then, Solomon's son would likely be trained as one who is prince to be a ruler and leader among God's people. Right? This is not merely Proverbs for the average person. This is Proverbs for David's grandson, Solomon's son, future king of Israel perhaps. At least prince and leader among the people. So we come to chapter 3. Let me take it on to chapter 3, verse 16. I think although not a theme verse, something that's significant. In chapter 3, verse 16, uh, the gift of wisdom. Wisdom is pictured as a lady calling out and to instruct. And Scripture says, Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Uh, you would see something similar in Proverbs 22, 4. The reward of humility and fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. So then, then you read the epitaph on King David. In 1 Chronicles 29, Scripture says, He died in a ripe old age, full of days, riches, honor, and his son Solomon then reigned in his place. So he died in a ripe old age, full of days, riches, and honor. So he had full days, riches, and honor. You come to Proverbs, and what is the reward of wisdom? It is riches, honor, and a long life. When Solomon begins to ascend to the throne and God speaks to him in a vision and asks him what he would have, whether it's riches or uh, military prowess and victory, Solomon simply asks for what? Wisdom. And God's response in 1 Kings, I have given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you in all your days. If you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So what's, what's the promise that Solomon gets? If he is faithful to the Lord, God will grant him not only wisdom, but the upshot from wisdom is what? Riches, honor, and life. So why would you want wisdom? Because the promise of wisdom is what? Riches, honor, and life. And I think 
maybe we have a little bit of anxiety over that because that sounds very much like a manipulative message from a prosperity preaching church where if you get Jesus and give him your money, you'll get riches, honor, and life. So there is a little bit of a theological tension. How are we supposed to handle this? If Scripture is so plainly says that the outcome from wisdom, those who live a wise and careful and prudent life have, have generally speaking, the hope of riches, honor, and life, how am I to, to recognize and, and maybe avoid the dangers of a type of message that says that the reason I come to God is to get stuff for myself? How am, I to, how am I to make sure I guard this path of mine and my motives? Well, I think this, the, the, out, the, the introduction of Proverbs at the very outset of this book, Solomon guards us from the type of avarice or selfish pursuit of these things. And so as we look in verses 1 through 7, he says, These are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And then he gives a whole bunch of purpose statements. With, you'll see them with the word to. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Two, understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So I think Solomon, right at the outset, guards us. In fact, he doesn't talk about riches and honor life till chapter 3. He talks about some of the protection at the end of chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, the spiritual life of the wise person and the protection it offers. We get to chapter 3, and you see more of that offer of wisdom, giving riches, honor, and life. So let me, let me just break this down into three separate ideas I think that are present there are more maybe we could have gone four but if we said this wisdom leads to understanding life accurately i think that's his first concern in terms of the order in which he he walks through wisdom for his son solomon wants his son to know that that wisdom leads us to understand life accurately he says to know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness. So there's both the intellectual properties of wisdom as well as how to live out wisdom. So there's both like theory and practice that he's dealing with in verses 2 and 3. I think you see a similar thought in almost a reverse order in verses 4 and 5. Giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. These seem to be practical things. Whereas verse 6 seems to be intellectual things. So wisdom is concerned with giving people what they need to know, but also what they need to know about how to live. It's not merely intellectual. It's also practical. In fact, I think when you come down to verse 2, it says wisdom and instruction. I think that word instruction is better understood as correction. That's corrective instruction. It's not how to. It's how not to. So that the, the Proverbs are not only do this, there's also a, do not do this. This is the way you should think. Do not think this way. This is the way you should live. 
Do not live this way. You guys tracking with the thought that, that Solomon is saying Proverbs lead us to recognize that life is challenging. In fact, I, I think by, by understanding this text well and then looking at the, the flow of Proverbs, there's a recognition that, that, that wisdom is needed. Look with me in verse 4. For whom? The simple. Maybe we could say the naive. Well, who is naive? You could say maybe the inexperienced, the young, the person who, they're not naive because they're, they're hard-headed. They're naive because they're inexperienced. You know, so if you handed a, a pair of keys to my son, it doesn't matter which son you gave them to, I'd be terrified. So whether it's the four-year-old, the seven-year-old, or the 11-year-old, I don't want any of my sons driving any cars. Not because they're evil, not because they're dumb, but because they're inexperienced and young. And so what we would expect then as that child grows and develops, that they get the maturity intellectually to engage life better. And so the Proverbs are designed to instruct the naive, but continue on to verse 4. He says, not only the, <coughs> excuse me, the naive or the simple, but also to the, <coughs> the youth. <coughs> that is, young people need to be instructed. They are inherently untrained because they're young. Proverbs are for them. But come down to verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 5. Who else is to understand Proverbs? Let the, the wise hear and increase. But then he continues on. The one, who, the one who is shrewd to gain more shrewd guidance. The one who is the one who has understanding, the one who knows. So who needs the Proverbs? Every well, do you know who? Solomon is not appealing to the scorner, the fool. Those people are not included in this gracious appeal to come and sit and listen to wisdom. But if you are young and inexperienced, there is no shame in that. There is shame in staying empty-headed, foolish, not knowing or hard-hearted when you're older but not when you're young, not when you're inexperienced. That's what the Proverbs are for. But if the Proverbs are also for the wise person, then we would expect that Proverbs, by deliberate intention, take the simple person and lead them to wisdom, but also lead the wise person and lead them into deeper wisdom. In other words, the Proverbs are intentionally, progressively more complex and lead to greater depths of wisdom, from simplicity to wisdom to greater wisdom. So I can simply say to all of you, you haven't got it figured out yet. And this is why Proverbs 26 says there's more hope of a fool than of someone who thinks he's wise. Because when you think you're wise, when you think you've attained wisdom, what do you do? You stop learning. You stop thirsting for what you don't know. You feel like you've achieved something, and you start coasting. When you look at this challenge to his son, I want you to... Catch the intellectual words. Maybe I should say the, 
the wisdom types of words. Right? There's a lot of them. To know, to understand. The end of verse 2, to have insight, to have instruction. Verse 3, wise dealings. Verse 4, prudence, knowledge, discretion. Verse 5, to increase in learning, to understand and have shrewd guidance. To understand a proverb, that's another word for wisdom there, a wise saying. And then it says the words of the wise and their riddles. His point here is that wisdom is inherently at its outset an intellectual discipline that's work. Maybe I could just simply apply it this way. There is, there is no way that the young man or the inexperienced man was expected to engage life righteously. It was too complex, too challenging. And so he needed his father to train him to think with wisdom and that training was inherently challenging to engage in. It's not simple. Anyone can know that two plus two is four. But to be able to walk through life and understand how to act with wisdom requires not merely teaching, but teaching in which the student worked hard to learn, to grow in understanding, to gather perceptiveness, and to be able to see into the shrewd schemes of the evil person and the wicked person that they might not be tempted by them. There are dishonesties, there are levels of gray, there are intricacies of life in which wisdom is necessary or we will choose wrong, thinking it's right. And so the call to the diligent believer is to be careful to discipline your soul, to think clearly, and to work hard at thinking clearly. And the more clearly you think, the harder you have to work to think more clearly. But the constant revision of this son in his thinking was a necessary pursuit that would never end until he died. I know for probably most adults in this room, you can look back on your years as a child maybe even conversations with your parents with a little bit of embarrassment. You thought you knew what you were talking about. And you look back and you realize how smart your parents truly were. And now you just wish that you could teach your kids that lesson you finally learned. That mom and dad actually knew way more than we thought they knew. But now your kids are looking at you like, you do not know anything, mom and dad. And you know in about 15, 20 years, they're going to look at you and be like, mom, dad, you knew so much more than I thought you knew. But by then, they're wrestling with their own kids. And it feels like it's one of those lessons that you just learned too late in life, that mom and dad are actually wise. Well, the point would be, and I think the, the caution for Solomon's son would be this. God's word is like the ever-present parent that we tend to not listen to. And only in retrospect do we say something like, oh, how wise the scripture. I wish I would have listened better. Lady Wisdom is calling out and saying, come learn. It takes diligence. It takes hard work. It's never a lesson in which you graduate from. And so as you learn more and more of Scripture, as you get more and more insight, and you come again to the Proverbs and you read them, you'll probably think something like this. Oh, I've never seen that before. That's amazing. I know that guy. But when you were 20 and you read it, it you just missed it. Probably in 10 or 15 years when you read them again, you'll find new insights. 
So don't make it 10 or 15 years between readings. Read regularly. Again, I think, I think the father calling out to his son is walking in the patterns of Deuteronomy where the father is called to raise his child to understand the scriptures. When God begins his covenant relationship with Israel, Deuteronomy describes her as the role of the parent. It says, when you rise in the morning, talk with your son. When you recline at night, talk with him. When you walk in the way, talk with him. When you sit down, talk with him. And the point is, is that the father is pictured as always engaging and instructing his son in how to live. And so Solomon writes out for us that very call to his son. This is how one obeys and follows the laws of God. Here's what it looks like to be a man of integrity. Here's how you follow Torah, the law, in your relationships and business. Here's how a godly man plows his field and takes care of his household and cares for his animals. Here's how a loving man walks with his neighbors. Here's how a man of integrity deals with business. And he's taking the law and he's putting flesh and bones on it in Proverbs and simplifying through hard, diligent work into rememberable? memorable sayings. You know, so we have sayings like this that, are, that, that, that ring true but also teach us. For instance, an ounce of prevention is worth, you guys all, that was bad. A penny saved is a, okay, that's much better. So we have, we have Proverbs, and they capture truth. These Proverbs are God-given, and they don't only capture truth. They're trying to lead to discernment because life has dilemmas and complexities that cannot be understood by the simple. And so with these Proverbs, Solomon is painting lines on the highway of life because it's treacherous, because it is deceitful, because the path in front leads to life or death, and the way is hard to see. If you want to see life well, if you want to understand life clearly, if you want to give good counsel if you want to be able to counsel your own soul, become very acquainted with the book of Proverbs. And the more you work at the discipline of interpreting the Proverbs, the discipline of tilling up the, the, the theological and the practical truth, the more your mind is sharpened to understand more. Again, look down in verse 6. To understand a proverb. Well, that's a follow-up from, from verse 5 where he says, to the wise hear and do what? Increase. To the one who understands, obtain this. Why? So that you can understand the Proverbs. So the Proverbs have a, a, a sequential work in them. The more you understand Proverbs, the more you go back to them and learn more. And then the more you've learned, what happens? The more you are able to go back and learn more. It's meant to be a, a rich spiral by which we get deeper and deeper into our understanding of how to grab a hold of life, discern right and wrong, make good value choices, and help others to do the same. How often have you wondered what to do in life? Often it is, matter, it is a matter of wisdom already revealed. Let me just give you a sample. I think this is just so precious. Um, 
It's one of my favorite Proverbs. Proverbs 21, 31. Just, just as a sample of what I, I think is so insightful for, for life. I think I mentioned this in our Friday morning Bible study. If I didn't, I mentioned it sometime last week to someone when I was giving some counsel. So let me back up because I think there's a little bit more. Context, verse 30. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Now, I think on the surface, we could just say simply, God is the one who gives victory. Could you not? Could you see that in that verse? Does it mean more than that, though? Does it perhaps tell us that there is no one who can oppose the Lord successfully? Yeah, you could probably see that as well. One of the most encouraging thoughts of this text for me is just the thought that I have a responsibility to metaphorically get my horse ready, but always trust the Lord. Who wins the battle? Who wins the battle every time? The Lord does. Who never loses a battle? So what's my job then? Do I sit down and do nothing? If the Lord is going to win the battle with or without me, should I just do nothing? This feels very much like a Calvinistic conundrum. If the Lord is going to save them anyway, should I not share the gospel? The answer is what? How about we go to battle? Look at the, look at the metaphor of battle here in verse 31. What do I do when I, when I think of battle? And I have a battle coming tomorrow. What should I do? I get my horse ready. But who gives the victory? Where's my trust? Where's my hope? Where's my confidence? And so when I'm facing insurmountable problems, I don't do nothing and pray. I work hard, pray and trust, because the Lord's the one that gives the victory. When you go through the Proverbs, and for instance, it was probably decades of hearing the verse, a righteous man falls seven times, and what does he do? gets up again. First phrase of that verse says, a righteous man does what? You know how many of us have a theology that says righteous people never fall? Righteous people are not immune to sin. They fall. Their righteousness is proven not in the lack of failure, but in the lack of quitting. Pursuing the Lord is what they always do when they fail. Some of you have failed, some of you have fallen, some of you have not been pursuing the Lord like you should. The answer to who you are is not yet to be given until you quit or rise again. Righteous men fall, but get up again. We come back to Proverbs chapter 1. It's easy to see on the surface some of these Proverbs have a simple, profound truth. Righteous men fall, for instance. We think the proverb is telling us that righteous men don't fall, that they're always on their feet. When in fact, the, right, the righteous man is typified by climbing back to his feet type of living. It takes discernment, it takes work, it takes diligence, it takes insight to know the proverbs. And so they teach us that insight and then give more of it. 
And the more you work the Proverbs, the more they work into your mind God's wisdom so that you know how to live his law, so that you know how to please him. Look with me in verse 3 then. I think at the end of verse 3 you get this thematic characteristic of wisdom. Wisdom doesn't simply lead us to understand life. It leads us to morality. Morality. Or in my notes I have it, wisdom leads us to walk uprightly. The end of verse 3. We receive instruction and wise dealing in what? Righteousness, justice, and equity. In other words, the scriptures are not merely telling us how to think about life. The outcome of these Proverbs is that Solomon's son, or by extension all of us as we read the Proverbs, would have our thinking shaped to understand life so that our morality is shaped in such a way that we can say simply, a wise person always lives uprightly. A wise person always acts with integrity. A wise person always treats people fairly. Well, why would you say that? Because that's what verse 3 says, right? We receive instruction from the Lord's word. We get wisdom in how to deal with people so that we interact with our world in righteousness with justice and with equity. So you'd see something like this in Proverbs 21. Do righteousness and justice. It's more acceptable than sacrifice. Or Proverbs 28.5. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. It's, it's, I mean, it is an indictment against our political culture that justice is impossible to find. And I have no idea on some of these like national cases what the actual truth is, which is probably exactly the point. There are so many smoke screens and news stories and deceit and power. It's hard to know what justice actually looks like. I mean, <clears throat> please do not stone me for saying this, but it seems as though the people that wanted to crucify Hillary for having classified documents on her server in her home are justifying Donald Trump for having classified documents in Mar-a-Lago. I, I don't care. Let's just treat them both the same. If they're doing the same thing, let's, let's treat each other with equity. If it's a high crime for her, it's a high crime for him. And vice versa. That seems really simple. Now, I don't know the truth of who's got what documents where, and I'm not trying to jump into the right and wrong of those things. It just seems like we have two political parties that are trying to tell us that the world is made of evil people that are called Democrats. And the other side is saying the world is made of evil people and they're all Republicans. I'm just thinking evil is actually not subjective. It's really clear. It's really objective in Scripture. And if you lose sight of it, the way to re-engage life with ethics and integrity is to know the Scriptures. And look in the mirror of Scriptures first for your own integrity. Okay, so, so looking at these words here, the idea of justice has this idea of making right assessments of the world and acting on them. It's, it's 
being unwilling to justify the wicked man and being unwilling to condemn the innocent. Righteousness should need no introduction for the Christian. It is a moral uprightness. It's a rectitude, a goodness in all of life. And then that idea of equity there has the idea of, of everyone plays by the same rules. The ground is level. We don't tilt the rules in anyone's favor. And probably the ways in which you see this on an everyday basis challenge is if you're in any type of little league kid sports and you have one of those dad coaches and his kid has no right even to make the team, let alone to be the starting pitcher or whatever, and all the parents are like horrified that this dad is doing this because it's everyone knows that this kid doesn't deserve to be it. He's putting his kid out there for failure and then he's yelling at his kid, but his kid's always the starter. I would tend to be unjust the other way, and that is my kid might deserve to be the starter, but they would still be sitting on the bench because I'd be afraid of being unjust in favor of my kid. I'd probably very likely be unjust in, in the negative against my child. Now, equity, is, equity is doing right, helping everyone uh, or, or treating everyone by the same rules with which you should be treating them. Okay, so, so just to simplify it then, wisdom is not... Just knowing. Wisdom is acting on what you know to be right. How often do you know what is right, but it doesn't feel good or doesn't appeal to you or you don't really want to? I mean, it's like the snooze button, right? Like, you know you need to get up. You know you need to get stuff done. Your alarm was set with rational thinking the night before. But in the temptation of the sleep thinking in the morning, you know, like when you're, you're still cloudy in your mind, you're not thinking clearly, and you figure you can get it all done on time, and you hit snooze again and again. Like, that's a question of wisdom, is are you going to do what's right in the moment in which it doesn't feel good? Would you want to do otherwise? Wise people don't merely understand the world correctly or accurately. They also choose to live in light of what is accurate. I think that's really helpful for, for, for the Christian to think that way because many times we know what is right. We just don't like it. We don't want to. Or the discipline to get it done is something we don't plan so it doesn't happen. If you want to give faithfully to the Lord and generously to him, and I think Proverbs would tell you that that is wisdom, it usually doesn't happen if you don't think about it and make a plan. If you don't budget your money, you're probably not going to be generous with God's people. If you want to lose weight, you probably need to make a plan and say no to the cake. Believe me, the battle to choose righteousness under temptation is harder than saying no to any cake. And perhaps without making too fine a point on it, if we have a hard time with some of the simple disciplines that are so clearly present in our life, like sleep and diet, maybe we should be more concerned with our personal holiness as well. And I don't get on a scale every day and have a needle tell me I'm not being very godly. But I can get on a scale and look at my weight and say, whew, okay. No more Twinkies. Wouldn't it be nice if you could get on a scale 
It said, you need to read more of the Bible. Or if it said, hey, you're, you're, you know what? Keep at it, Mark. You're doing all right. The book of Proverbs can be that for you. But you've got to be in it. You've got to read it. And as Jesus says, you've got to examine yourself. I mean, when I read the book of Proverbs, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's them. Oh, John needs this one. My wife, man, I, 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 you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote that verse to her. That is not how to read the book of Proverbs. You read the book of Proverbs, it's, it's God's mirror. God is teaching you wisdom and discernment and insight. God is teaching you so that you can walk in ways that please his son. And that leads us to our final point. Really, it's the foundational point, the theme of all of the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, I assume, if we start with that second part, fools despising wisdom and instruction, you could take that, and I think you'd probably take it wrongly if you take it this way. You could think of that as an attitudinal despising. That is, like, fools look at instruction. They look at knowledge, and they're like, I don't need that. Well, they, they could say that. They probably don't. They probably just leave their Bibles unopened. They don't pursue it. They despise it by action, probably not as much by attitude. In other words, despising is to leave closed the storehouse of wisdom. It is to be constantly distracted during equipping hours and worship services by cell phones and doodling. It is to be constantly distracted from thinking about life with clarity of God's word because you're so busy, and frankly, you've probably hit the snooze button too many times, now, when your feet finally hit the floor on a Monday morning, you have no time to talk to your Lord or to open up his word. That's what it means to despise instruction. If you think you're wise in your own eyes, you don't need the Bible. I should say if you think you're wise in your own eyes. If you are wise in your eyes, then you probably are not thirsty for God's word, for God's wisdom. But to go to the thematic framing of the initial lines, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He'll say later in chapter 9, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Read through Proverbs, you see that the fear of the Lord is used some 14 times. The person who fears the Lord knows the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 9, verse 10. I think chapter 1, verse 7. That is, the fear of the Lord is knowledge of the Holy One. It is to know Him as friend. It is to walk with Him as under His Lordship and kingship through submission and knowledge of His Word. You do not know the Lord if you are not saved. If you are in a saved, trusting relationship with the Lord, then you have the foundation of wisdom starting to be laid. Okay, so go to chapter 3, verse 5. What does it say? Trust. Come on, starting the memory verses is the hardest thing. I've started it with you. St right? Trust in. And do not lean to what? Oh. 
So my understanding and trusting the Lord are actually enemies. Why are they enemies? Because if you think you understand, you don't need the Lord's understanding. You don't need his word. You don't trust in your own understanding. You trust in the Lord's understanding. That's why there's such accuracy and good wisdom. Because you have horrible eyesight. Many of you, I can see, like me, have corrective lenses. As you wear contacts, so you may not know that. You go to the eye doctor and they do one of these things. They, they like slap these lenses down. Actually, you, now like they go start with a computer and so they actually are pretty accurate, but it used to be like a lot of lenses. And, and you get these lenses and slowly your eyesight gets more and more clear. Now scripture is telling us that we all have wretched eyesight. The problem is we think we have good eyesight. We're all colorblind, but we don't even know it. Our friends can see it, and they're like, what is wrong with you? Why would you wear that out in public? It's so easy to see in others their folly. Well, how do you get your lenses corrected? How do you see the world accurately? We trust in the Lord's wisdom by knowing his word, and we put in these lenses by which we evaluate all of life, and particularly our own footsteps. Are you walking around colorblind? Or do you have the lenses of the Lord helping you see life? So when we, we talk about the fear of the Lord, it is coming to him, walking with him, and living in that trust. I think the best metaphor I have for that is the one that's fairly common is we walk with the Lord. We could probably rephrase verse 7 this way. The fear of the Lord Jesus Christ is the beginning of knowledge. You could do the same in chapter 9, verse 10. You know, Scripture says that Christ is for us the very wisdom of God. To walk with Christ is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning can have kind of, you know, perhaps two senses in which we might say, like, it's foundational. It's like the first, the first thing. It's all laid upon this. Or it could be first in the sense of like, in a list of things, you've got to get this one first. I think we ought, to, we ought to understand it second. Maybe picture the pyramids. The first layer is the layer on which all others are built. It has to be done first. I mean, it's not like you can build all the layers of the Great Pyramid and then slide under that bottom layer. You build it first. And upon that good foundation, all other growth, and building rests. So too, the wise person's foundation, not only first, but the bedrock on which it rests is walking with God. It's the fool who said in his heart, there is no God. To reject God, to be atheistic, invariably sets aside an ability to see life clearly. And it is only by God's common grace that you see wisdom in the world. But it's a wisdom that's tainted. It's a wisdom that's affected by humanism and self-sufficiency and pride. How much better to be the Christian that enters life with a full recognition that God calls us to do things for which the only reason it's wise is because God is trustworthy. Right? Like, 
The horse is prepared for battle, but victory is from. If I don't know the Lord at all, or don't think there is a Lord at all, then I just have the first line of the proverb, prepare your horse really well. But I have no hope that the Lord will give an outcome because I don't even trust the Lord at all. We trust in the Lord with our whole heart. We walk with him. We fear him. As you look at what the fear of the Lord does, it's to know him. Chapter 10, verse 27, it leads to life. Chapter 8, it causes us to hate evil. Chapter 15, it's more precious than any treasure. It is the foundation of wisdom. It leads to riches, honor, and life in chapter 22. It protects from evil and evil's consequences in chapter 10, chapter 14, and chapter 19. The fear of the Lord is good. It leads to good. We have contrast with the fool. The fool despises wisdom. In chapter 10, he babbles on to his own ruin. In chapter 10, again, he dies out of the sheer bankruptcy of his own ignorance. He becomes a servant of the wise man. He justifies himself in his own eyes. He possesses a violent and sudden temper in chapter 12. He hurts others in pride, clubbing them with harsh words. Chapter 12, verse 16. He mocks the notion of forgiveness and spiritual reconciliation with God in chapter 14. He rejects his father's correction in chapter 15, 5. Only correction he does receive is folly. It's the only word he listens to is folly. How tragic the life of the fool, chapter 16. He breaks out into sudden fights, chapter 20. He aggravates people by his own stupidity, chapter 27. His foolishness cannot even be beaten out of him like a pestle with mortar, chapter 27. He laughs always even when going to court and getting sued, chapter 29.9. The life of the fool is misery, and he's too dumb to even know it. And God guard us from being foolish. So let me see if we can frame this again and, and kind of bring these threads together in this text. Wisdom leads to seeing life accurately. Here's, here's like, let me just tease us out. He's going to talk about sexuality in chapter chapter 4, 5, and 7. Now he immediately starts with his son and says, avoid easy sex. Why? Because it wrecks homes. It leads to the grave. It destroys people. It will ruin you, he says. So then we have a culture, a pervasive sexuality. And we have to ask the question, do we truly believe that what God says about sexuality, about remaining in sexual innocence until marriage, and there in marriage guardianship, we protect our spouses by joining together in a sacred union that will not break until we die? Do we truly believe that's the best way to live, the best way to please God, and the most satisfying way to live? Do you believe that? And that's where we say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Right? Trust in the Lord. Do not lean on your own understanding. The world will tell you that it won't hurt anything 
if in deep relational commitment prior to marriage, you enjoy an appetizer. And God is saying, do you trust me? Wisdom looks at life accurately and is able to say, while there might be some temporary short-lived gain, the fool wrecks his life for the temporary joy of easy sexual enjoyment. Only the fool does that. I will keep myself sacred and clean for my marriage because that's wisdom and I trust God. And that would have all of these outcomes. Like, therefore, I'm going to dress appropriately because chapter 5 says that a girl's breasts are for her husband. So I'm going to cover them up because it is teasing out a distrust in God to get satisfaction from the approval of men, if I'm a woman, or enjoy looking at women, if I'm a man. I suppose in our culture, I just don't even have to say a man or a woman on that side. These dressing appropriately and keeping your eyes appropriate is public conversation in Israel because it's common sexual sin. So we come to our culture, and we live in a culture in which if you go to any type of beach, the girls are putting on a show. And there's this national fraud that this is okay. And only the creepy guy looks. It's just the dumbest lie ever. And only a fool buys in. No godly girl wants to show a man something that only her husband has a right to see. So here's, let me just, can I keep being honest with you? I was going to say start being honest with you, but I've been honest for the last five minutes. Well, they've been honest the whole time, but you know what I mean. Um, so, so here's where I think as a church we can have compassion. Go back to, to verse 4. Who needs wisdom? It's the naive. It's the young. We have, we have people who have not grown up in good homes. We have, we, have, we have adult men and women in our church who have never been trained to think with wisdom. We have people in our church who are acting in foolishness and are, are unaware because they have not had wise, godly influences. Sages like Solomon who counsel them, wisdom is to do this. What we do not need is a bunch of grumpy judgers pointing fingers and condemning others. But like Solomon who appeals with grace Foolish people look at trash on their cell phones, tainting their marriages and jeopardizing their sexual joy with their spouses. But I guarantee you most of the men in our church need to be very careful on their cell phones, godly ones and ungodly ones alike. All of us men have to be very careful on our phones. But we need a call by wise, gracious men to 
guard our eyes. We do not need some holier-than-thou finger-wagger. Right? If a righteous man falls and gets up again, we need some gracious people to say, hey, let's get up. Let's keep walking. Having said that, we don't do that by being tolerant of falling. So that's, that's the, the balance I'm trying to hit in these kind of two, like one, two punches. Like I, I see within our church a lot of folly. And so my appeal to you all is I hope it's because there's naivete and youth and immaturity that we can disciple towards wisdom. What we don't need is a bunch of condemnation. We need discipleship. Follow after Christ in the fear of the Lord. Stop that behavior. Don't do that. Wear more clothes. Guard your eyes on your cell phone. Don't go on dates that will lead you to that type of temptation. Give to the Lord with your money. Be generous with what you've earned. But I don't make anything. I'm a poor college kid. Well, it starts now. You don't have much to give then. But you give. Right? Like those discipleship moments in grace. Because we want to lead our young people to trust in the Lord and how they live. So I'm going to make an appeal, another appeal to you moms and dads. Some of you guys are just starting out. And in all kindness, you are as dumb as a box of rocks. Because you're pretty new to the Christian faith. And now all of a sudden you're looking at your two-year-old and you're going like, oh my goodness, I have got to get this two-year-old girl to the wedding altar without her train wrecking this thing. Get in the scripture. The scripture is designed for people who know they're dumb as a box of rocks. Who, don't, who know they, they need to know something. They don't know it. So get in the scripture. Read the book of Proverbs, which again is putting flesh and bones on God's law. How am I supposed to obey God's law? Read the Proverbs. It's telling you how to do it in everyday life. You want to know how to raise your children to be godly men and women? Read Proverbs. It'll teach your children as it teaches you. Then you got some patterns. You're like, okay, last year I was really dumb. Now I'm only kind of dumb. But I got something. I've read Proverbs a lot. Now I know how to discipline my child because a loving parent disciplines his child. I thought it was harmful to discipline my kid. Proverbs tells me it's harmful not to. Right? God disciplines those he... Oh, so there's a good proverb. Because our world tells us it's unloving to discipline. I will not lean to my own understanding. I will trust the Lord because I fear him. That's why it's the foundation. That's why it begins with the fear of the Lord. Over the next couple of weeks, I plan to spend a few more sermons in the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs gives us an accurate understanding of life then it leads us to an upright life. So Spurgeon says it this way, wisdom is, is the, what does he say, the application, the right application of understanding. I think we got to add a little more to that or at least understand that the right application means also the Christ-centered application. So maybe I just like tease that out for you. Wisdom is the right reason for the right application of understanding. The right reason being Christ-centered, fear of the Lord, 
the right application is I understand life correctly and I act on it. It's the right application of knowledge or the right application of understanding. I realize that no one in this room can claim wisdom. But there are a lot of people in here who have a lot of years of learning and growth in scriptures. You have a lot of discipleship to give. Can I just encourage you all when you, when you disciple others, the strength of your counsel is directly proportional to its biblicity. Counsel with scripture. It is the fountain of all wisdom. Counsel others. As you walk in the fear of the Lord, that's the motive of all wisdom. And do it because that is the proof of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, help us to see life through the lens of your scripture. Through your spirit, I ask that you would give us the strength to walk with justice, with integrity, with righteousness. Father, I ask that you would help us to do so because we fear the Lord above all. We fear the Lord above the promises of rewards, the promises of honor. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our motives, sanctify our hearts, that we might walk with Christ. Lord, I ask that you would give our church a holiness that begins internally with a heart fully devoted to you and leads to lives that are patterned after the righteousness of Christ. Lord, guard us from an arrogant spirit. There's not one person in this room who does not need to grow in wisdom. There's not one person in this room whose walk is so close to you that they could not get closer. So Lord, I pray that you would grant us the humble desire to know your word, to apply it rightly, because we love you supremely. In Jesus' name, amen.